language changes over time to meet the needs of speakers that are most crucial to their lives. So based on uh, their needs or their interests, certain vocabulary sets for that person will either deepen or shorten. So let me give you an example. Did you know that the Inuit people in northern Canada have over 50 different words for snow? Over 50 different words for snow. See, their vocabulary set is very elaborate. So here's a couple of examples. They have separate, distinct words to describe softly falling snow versus the kind of snow that's good for driving a sled. There's a word for the powdery crystal-like snow that looks like salt. And there's also the, a word for the wet kind of snow that's, good, that's used to ice down your sleigh runners. And there's plenty more. And that makes sense, right? When you live in northern Canada, northern Canada, your daily existence involves snow, doesn't it? Like you need to know about it. You need to be able to differentiate between the different types of snow and, 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 and what's useful for different kinds of applications. So before I moved to New England, my vocabulary list for snow was incredibly short. A lot of you know I'm from Texas. We had heard of snow, seen some sleet, and every couple of years there was this wintry mix. But that's it. That's all you need to know. Then I moved here, and I learned the difference between a dusting and a snow shower. I've experienced the intensity of a snow squall, the blinding danger of a blizzard, and the power of a nor'easter. I've shoveled heavy, wet snow, and I've also moved light, powdery snow. I actually know now when it's a time to shovel and when it's time to just let it melt on its own. I no longer have to wait till my neighbors come out and to know when am I supposed to get out there. My, my vocabulary and my understanding of snow has deepened. Why? Because I now live in a climate where that is a yearly reality. See, over the last several weeks, we've been unpacking the vocabulary set of the Christian faith called the Apostles' Creed. And we've been using the Apostles' Creed as our outline to look at what it is that Christians believe. See, Christianity, like everything else, comes with a vocabulary set that's necessary to understand if we're going to apply it. A Texan can survive with a very limited snow vocabulary because it's not necessary or relevant. But a New Englander, or an Inuit for that matter, right, needs to have a deepened snow vocabulary in order to be prepared and to get on with daily life in winter. The Apostles' Creed gives us a vocabulary set for our faith. And the more we understand it, the more we'll be able to understand how all of these doctrines fit together to provide a comprehensive way of looking at life in the way that God has designed it. Today we come to another one of those vocabulary words, and it's the incarnation. The way the creed unpacks the incarnation is it says it like this. I believe that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And so today, we're going to look at the reality of the incarnation. We'll define the term. We'll, we'll ask, what does it really matter? Is it important? Is it essential to our faith? Or is it merely an irrelevant trinket of an outdated creed? 
I mean, do Christians really believe that Jesus was miraculously conceived and born of a virgin? Doesn't it seem now in our modern age to just let that one go? Isn't that belief untenable? We'll unpack that. We'll ask that question. Then we'll look at the reason for the incarnation. If it's true, what does it accomplish? What does it serve? What is its significance? And then finally, we'll look at our response to the incarnation. Once we know it's real, once we've seen what it means and what it does, how do we respond to the fact that God in Christ has come to be God with us? So our outline today is we'll see the reality of the incarnation, the reason for the incarnation, and then we'll look at the response to the incarnation. So let's begin with the reality. See, the Bible tells us that Jesus was conceived in a remarkable and miraculous way. See, our text today is not just something you read at Christmas time when you're thinking about Advent. Matthew tells us the story from Joseph's perspective, and then Luke tells us the story that we read here from Mary's perspective. Now, I'm about to read to you both accounts, and I've condensed it a bit. I've taken out things um, so that we can really highlight the fact that Jesus was conceived by the power of of the Holy Spirit and that Mary really is a virgin. So look at Matthew chapter one with me. We'll have the words on the screen. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. Now again in Luke 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, friends, you do not need a seminary degree to understand what is written in plain language. Mary was betrothed, engaged to a man named Joseph, and before they came together sexually, while she was a virgin, the Holy Spirit conceived in her womb a son, and they were to name him what? All right, thank you for paying attention. Now listen, Mary says, hey, Gabriel, I have a question for you, right? We often think people from the ancient world were stupid, right? They didn't know how babies were made. Friends, listen, they know how babies were made, okay? And she says, how will this happen, right? That's, that's the evidence, right? Because she goes, hey, Gabriel, you're not omniscient. You're not omnipresent like God. You may not have realized this, but I have never been with a man before. 
and I'm not supposed to be with this man until we're actually married. How will I put, how will there be a child in my womb since I'm a what? A virgin. She knows how babies are made. We know how babies are made. And we know this is not how it happens. See, hardly anyone denies the existence of a man named Jesus from the town of Nazareth who was crucified on a Roman cross in Jerusalem. There's almost nobody who's serious who denies that reality. You have the records of the Bible. You have other historians from that same time period who are not Christians who write about that very thing. So it it is a historically reliable fact. Boom, Jesus existed. Almost nobody denies that. No real scholar or historian denies that. But like all men, no one would deny that he was born of a woman, right? They would say, yeah, of course, there was a guy named Jesus. He was born just like everybody else. But the claim of Christianity is this. Jesus was miraculously conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born to a virgin named Mary. The incarnation is the result of this miraculous conception. Now, the word incarnate just means to embody or to take on flesh. And in the incarnation of Christ, we're saying the Son of God, who has always existed, and if you've been tracking with us, we've been saying this for the last three weeks, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, has always existed, and he is fully and truly God, always. And at this particular point in history, At the uh, miraculous conception, he added to his divine nature a human nature so that the result is Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now, it's at this point that many go, hey, I'll see you later, right? It's been fun. Uh, You 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 had a nice setup. It was great, but uh, I don't do miracles. Miracles don't happen. It's time to part ways with Christianity. The Bible, the claims of the Bible are written off as either myth or some grand conspiracy. Other people try to um, edit the biblical account to make it more palpable to the modern mind. So what they're going to do, like Thomas Jefferson, is they're going to start cutting out things in their Bible that smell of miraculous or divine and say, I like the teachings of Jesus. I like the moralities of Jesus. I like even the lifestyle of Jesus. But all this other stuff is complete Uh, fanciful nonsense and they write all that off together so they they try to edit the bible to make it palpable to them either way my hope this morning is that we would suspend disbelief for a moment and ask the question how can we actually believe in the reality of uh, the miraculous conception so first let me deal with the uh, the objection that science rules out the miraculous now let me say this Science is powerful and extremely helpful at answering a lot of life's questions. Let me be really clear. Christians are not anti-science. If you've heard that, if you've even seen some Christians, they do not represent Christianity. Actually, some of the world's best scientists are Christians, and historically, science has been driven by Christians if you do your history homework. Christians are not anti-science. In fact, Christians should be pro-science because science is a discipline that seeks to understand how things work. It's a study of structure and the behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. 
We believe God has created this world and he gives us not just license, but encourages us to understand his good world. It is a good thing for us to do it. And I'm very thankful that science has uh, discovered things and made uh, uh, discoveries that, that, that benefit and bless human life. It's a gift. That said, there are many questions that science is not equipped to answer. So I'll give you some right now. Science is not equipped to make moral judgments. It doesn't answer questions of should and ought. Science answers how the world is, not whether a state of affairs is right or wrong. That's not what it does. So let me give you an example. Science can create the technology uh, and the mechanism of a nuclear bomb, but science doesn't answer if it's right or wrong to use it. You see the difference? It doesn't make moral judgments. Science is, uh, also um, does not make aesthetic judgments as well. So science can tell us the frequency of uh, middle C, and how our ears function to hear that note. It's incredible all that's going on when you hear music. But science isn't equipped to tell us if Beethoven's Fifth Symphony or if a Van Gogh painting is beautiful or not. It doesn't, it doesn't deal in aesthetics, questions of beauty. Also, science doesn't answer questions of history. Historical events by their very nature are unrepeatable and unchangeable. In fact, if you reenact the exact same uh, occurrence, guess what? It isn't the exact same event, right? It's just a reenactment of that other event, but it's still two separate events that happened at two separate points in time. So science cannot prove or even answer the question if Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo. That is not a question of science. That is a matter of history. They're two different disciplines. Science is set up to observe the natural world, yet it simply isn't equipped to analyze the supernatural. Again, I'm not against science. I'm very pro-science. What Christians are against is scientism. You hear the ISM on the back of that? Scientism. That is a worldview, a way of looking at the world that says we live in an entirely closed and naturalistic mechanical universe that absolutely and always operates according to fixed laws. That's what scientism says. In this worldview, the supernatural does not exist at all. All that exists is what is material. And it makes that assumption without evidence to the contrary. See, lack of evidence or dismissed evidence is not the same as contrary evidence. You see the distinction between those? Scientism simply presupposes the impossibility of miracles and the supernatural, which is to say it makes a faith-based assertion that the supernatural does not and could not exist. And what I mean by faith is not faith in God, but faith in not a God. It's a, it's, an, it's a belief in an unprovable presupposition. See, both Christianity and scientism begins with unprovable presuppositions and then builds a framework and a foundation from there. So let me ask you this. Is the virgin conception possible? Because miracles are of the supernatural, by definition, there simply isn't a scientific test you can run for that. The virgin conception was a unique event. 
That's not supposed to be repeated. That cannot be repeated. That was orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. See, we can't orchestrate that to repeat it because we simply lack the power to do that thing. Science can't replicate or explain the supernatural spontaneous generation of male sperm. If I could just be so very explicit there, right? That's what happened in that moment. Science cannot create something out of nothing. But that's what is going on in the virgin conception. God, the Holy Spirit, is recreating a new humanity through the humanity of Jesus Christ. And it's a unique supernatural event. And because of that, the discipline that's best suited to answer if an event occurred is not, his, is not science, but history. So let's turn to history. We just read it. And the source of history we have for the miracle is the Bible, and in particular, the Gospel of Luke and Matthew. Now, the Bible grounds our belief, not just in the existence of God, but a particular kind of God, right? And we've been looking at this over the last several weeks. The God we believe in has these attributes. He's omnipotent, which means all-powerful. He's omniscient, which means all-knowing. He's omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere. He's omnibenevolent, which means he is totally and completely good. He is holy. There, there is not the slightest moral imperfection in him. He's perfect and eternal. And, and there's all kinds of other attributes. That's who the Bible reveals God to be. And this God, given those attributes, is able to both work outside and inside his creation to bring about his will and purposes. So to put the matter really simply, if you believe in the God of the Bible, then there is nothing illogical about belief in miracles. Tim Keller writes in his book, The Reason for God, if God created everything out of nothing, it would hardly be a problem for him to rearrange parts of it when he wishes. See, for the believer, miracles aren't contrary to the nature and character of God. In fact, it's complementary because God cares about his creation. He is intimately involved in it. And so there are times when he works outside of the normal laws of physics and biology to bring about his good intended purposes. See, scientism is on to something, which is that for the most part, the universe does work according to the fixed law. That's why things happen on a regular basis. That's why the farmer's almanac can even be written. But there are times, according to God's purposes, according to his good pleasure, that he works in and does something that might be contrary to or contradistinctive to the natural way of things. So when we start to deny the miraculous as revealed in Scripture, what happens is our biblical and theological system starts to come apart because they're interconnected. So if we start to say that one part of the Bible is wrong, then all of a sudden the reliability of the Scripture starts to diminish. If we reject one piece of theology, then all of the theology that's related to it is also affected. So think about it like this. Theology is like an ecosystem, right? When a plant or animal species becomes extinct, it affects the whole environment. And it may not always be readily uh, apparent how that ecosystem is impacted, but if you remove something or add something to an ecosystem, um, there are consequences. It's not an inconsequential occurrence. 
The removal or addition of a plant or animal will impact the whole ecosystem. It's interwoven, and every part plays a role in the thriving of that particular ecosystem. The same is true with Christianity. If you start to remove doctrines or add doctrines, then that ecosystem starts to be negatively impacted. J. Gresham Machen said it like this, Everyone admits that the Bible represents Jesus as having been conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. What he's saying is, no one goes, that's not really what they're saying, right? That's exactly what it's saying. The only question is whether in making that representation, the Bible is true or false. That's really what the crux of the argument is. So you can't deny the miraculous conception of Jesus while at the same time calling into question the validity of the Bible itself. When you start to detract from that, you're saying the Bible is not a reliable and true source for our understanding. Matthew says it very clearly. This is how the birth of Christ took place. He said it happened in this way. He's not talking about spiritually or metaphorically. He's saying This is what happened. Luke says it like this, who, by the way, his job, he was a historian and a doctor, okay? His attention to detail matters in his line of work, doesn't it? Luke 1.1, this is his introduction. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So he's saying, we talked to people who saw it firsthand. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke wants Theophilus, his buddy, to be sure that what he's saying is true. They are not writing myth. They are writing history. It's clear both Matthew and Luke are writing with the intent to communicate an accurate historical account of what happened concerning the birth of Jesus. They understood their gospels not merely as advice, which you can take or leave, but as news about things that had actually happened during the life of Jesus. So the question becomes, really, do you take the Bible seriously in its claims. When it's communicating history and presenting us with an account of what actually happened, do you take it seriously? Now, if you don't believe in God, let me suggest that miracles are a poor place to begin your investigation. Put your investigative energy into whether or not the Bible is a trustworthy and reliable document telling us what actually happened, and if the God of the Bible is true, good, and beautiful. And if he isn't, if you come to the conclusion that the Bible is rubbish and that God is not a God to be worshipped and adored, then miracles, like that's not even the main point, right? Why bother with them? But if the Bible is true, if God is a God worthy of worship, then miracles make sense inside of that ecosystem. Now, if you are a Christian and miracles are a particular struggle for you, then likewise, I would also encourage you, put your energy first in knowing who God is and what he's like. Grow to love God and to trust his word. See, God doesn't ask you to understand how miracles work. 
There are just some things that are just beyond our intellectual capacity to understand. All he's asking you to do is by faith to trust that they do. And remember, when you start removing doctrines out of Christianity, our faith begins to erode. John Frame says it like this. The virgin birth is no more miraculous than the atonement or the resurrection or the regeneration of sinners. If miracle is rejected, then nothing important to Christianity can be retained. See what he's saying? At the end of the day, either Matthew and Luke are telling us the truth about Jesus' birth, or at best, they're reporting false information that they were given, or at worst, they are outright lying. And as a result, if that's true, the Bible is false, it's untrustworthy, it's unreliable, and therefore, it's unworthy of building your life on. But if they're telling us the truth, then how remarkable and life-changing is their testimony. So that said, let's look at the reason for the incarnation. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, even if I believe it's true, what does it really matter? Is it essential? What did the incarnation accomplish? Picture it like this. Imagine that you have been given the task to put together a puzzle, but you haven't seen the picture of that puzzle. So you start to work through it, and pieces seem kind of random, and you're not really sure how it all fits together. And you might be tempted to pick up a piece and maybe go, I don't know how this fits in. Maybe, maybe this piece is from some other puzzle. Like if you open up a puzzle in my house, that's a very real possibility. Or you might be tempted to think this puzzle piece doesn't really matter. It's insignificant. And the incarnation can seem like that if you don't have the whole picture and how all the pieces fit together. Our text tells us this morning that there are three important reasons why the incarnation matters. We'll quickly go through them. Number one, the incarnation secures the deity and humanity of Christ. See, the incarnation is important because it secures the deity and the humanity of Christ. Look at Matthew 1.23, which quotes and fulfills Isaiah 7.14. He says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, humanity, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, divinity. Look at Luke chapter 1. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The Holy Spirit supernaturally creates a human boy in Mary's womb who is fully human and at the same time fully God. He's identified as Emmanuel, God with us. They did not play fast and loose with calling something God. When they say this child will be God, they're not joking around. So there it is. Right there in those verses, we see this son is human, and at the same time, he is fully and truly God with us. Now remember, the word incarnation means to take on flesh. And so what we've been saying is the son of God, who has eternally existed at this point in history, added to his divine nature a human nature. So the way we say it is Jesus is one person, with two distinct natures, fully God, fully man. Now, when he, be, when he added to his human nature, he didn't stop being divine. He added to his divine nature a human nature in the person of Jesus. 
I've said it before, the two natures aren't fused together like an alloy and they're not blended up together like a smoothie. In his one person, there are two distinct natures. So what that means is this, everything that is true about humanity is true about Jesus except for sin. So here's what that means. Just like you and me, Jesus was born. See, his conception was miraculous, but his birth was every day, just like ours. See, God could have created the God-man in heaven and just beamed him down as a grown man, but that would mean he did not experience life like you and I experienced life. He entered the world just like you and I did through the birth canal. It's amazing when you think about it. He nursed, he grew up, he was needy. He had to obey his parents. He experienced puberty. (laughs) He walked, he talked, he learned things. He even had a job, just like you have a job. He experienced every human emotion, just like you do. He was tempted in every way. The only distinction is this. He was without sin. We'll get to that in a minute. And just like God, everything that is true about divinity is true about Jesus. So that means his divine nature, he has eternality. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnibenevolent. He's holy. The Bible says it like this, that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him bodily. Everything that is true about divinity is true about Jesus. Now, while we can't definitively say that this was the only way that God could have entered the world, what we can say definitively is this. This is how God chose to enter into his creation so that Jesus could be both fully God and fully man. The incarnation secures the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. Number two, the incarnation secures the sinlessness of Christ. The incarnation secures the sinlessness of Christ. Look at Luke 135. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. Luke tells us not only is Jesus fully human, he is also sinless. He is holy. Now, if Jesus were born of two human parents, Mary and Joseph, he would have inherited from them the guilt of sin, as well as their sin nature. Okay, here's what we mean. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, that was the consequence, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now what we're saying is that, what Paul's saying is Adam's sin back in the garden impacted the entire human race. It had consequences. We call that the fall. When Adam sinned, it didn't just impact him and Eve. It impacted the whole world and everyone born of Adam and Eve. That's everyone in this room. We are all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. From Adam and Eve, we inherited the guilt of their sin and a sin nature. So there's two things going on there. There's an inheritance from our first parents that's transferred down the line. Like our kids will inherit our national debt, even though it's debt they didn't pay, right? They didn't spend it, but we're spending it for them and we're gonna uh, uh, give it to them, right? You're welcome. That's okay, we just inherited the one we have. 
right? It's an inheritance. It's passed down. The guilt and condemnation that comes from sin is something we receive as an inheritance of being human. It's a legal guilt. Their legal guilt is now our legal guilt. Why? Because Adam and Eve served as representatives of the human race. So what that means is on the day you and I were born, before we did anything, we inherited guilt. That doesn't mean we did something wrong. It just means you received that inheritance. We inherit guilt from our parents who inherited it from their parents, who inherited it from their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve. It's like debt. It tr- debt transfers from one generation to the next. That's the legal guilt. So we, we're born, and when the Bible says we're born guilty, that's what it means. But in addition to that legal guilt, just in case you thought that was unfair, when Adam and Eve um, sinned in the garden, it forever changed the human DNA. So there's something broken in us. We're broken in our very nature. That's why we all desire to sin. So very quickly after birth, children will grow up, and guess what? They'll start committing sin on their own. I am a subject matter expert in this. I have five children. I have seen it firsthand. They sin not because we have taught them how to sin. They sin because it's in their very nature to do so. So what happens is we take the guilt that we inherit and we start compounding and adding onto it. We contribute to it. What happens in the incarnation is that God bypasses the inherited guilt by creating Jesus apart from the line of Adam. This is incredibly important. See, Jesus has God as his father, not Adam. If he had Adam as his father, he is an inheritor just like you and I. But he can't be born in sin. He's got to be sinless, which we'll see here in just a minute. He is not an heir to the sin and guilt of Adam's line. At the same time, to ensure that Adam uh, or that Jesus didn't receive the sin nature of Mary, God the Holy Spirit ensured that Jesus was set apart and holy. Okay, I talked to you about this legal uh, guilt, but there's also a nature that's broken in us. Luke tells us that the Spirit of God overshadowed Mary to bring about the work of creating the humanity of Jesus in Mary's womb. The way Luke words it, it is meant for us to think about Genesis chapter 1 when God, the Holy Spirit, hovered over the surface of the water. And when it came time to breathe life into Adam, the Spirit was there to transform this lifeless lump of clay into a man. So when the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary's womb, the creative breath of God is forming and creating in her womb a new humanity, one patterned after our new representative, Jesus Christ. And because it's a new creative act of God, he is free from all the impact and the effects of the curse of the fall. So he's free from the guilt of Adam. He's free from the inherited guilt and sin that has weighed down humanity. Now you're asking, well, how did the Spirit do that? I have no idea. I'm not God the Holy Spirit. I don't even have the knowledge or power to begin to conceive of how you would do that. We simply don't know how the Spirit did it. That said, what we emphatically know to be true is that the Holy Spirit did do it. 
And he used the incarnation as the means by which to preserve the sinlessness of Christ. He was born without sin and lived without sin. Listen to the testimony of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul's talking about on the cross, Jesus went there without sin, and he transferred all of our sin onto him so that he could become our substitute and sacrifice. Again, last week I went through a whole section on how our, uh, Jesus is our sacrifice and our substitute. You should listen to it. Hebrews 4.15 for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Right? Jesus has been tempted, but he's without sin. Hebrews 7.26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. This is how they're describing Jesus. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. 1 Peter 2.22, he, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Again, you can disagree with the Bible. You can dismiss it outright, but you can't say that it's not saying that Jesus was sinless, right? So not only did the Spirit bring about the miracle of his virgin conception, he also brought about the miracle of sanctifying the child in her womb so that Jesus would be born without inherited guilt and a nature corrupted by sin. Because Jesus was not from the line of Adam, he's free from the legal guilt and inherited sin nature that corrupts each and every one of us, which sets up the third reason why the incarnation is so important. The incarnation secures our salvation in Christ. It secures our salvation in Christ. Matthew 1.21. She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now the angel tells Joseph that the reason all of this is going on, the reason it's all going to take place, is that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the Redeemer, who will save people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. The name Jesus literally means God saves. That's what his name means. That's why he was given that name, because he is the God who saves. The greatest miracle of the incarnation is not the miraculous conception. It's that God would even bother to come in the first place. To me, that's the greatest miracle. That should be what we're even contemplating, not how is it that the Holy Spirit conceived a child in her womb. The fact that God would come at all is astounding. We live in a fallen, sinful world that we caused. We broke it. And God has not left us to suffer indefinitely but he definitively came in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man who saves us from our sins. John Calvin said this, only he who was true God and true man could bridge the gulf between God and ourselves. Because Jesus was fully God and fully man, because Jesus was sinless, he is the only one who could bridge the gulf of our sin. 
Listen to how Paul says how Jesus secured our salvation. Romans 5, 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, he's speaking about Adam and Eve's sin. It led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. While it may be unfair that one man's sin brought condemnation to all, I'm really thankful that through one man's obedience, salvation and justification is brought to me. Where the sin of one man, Adam, brought death and condemnation, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ brought about the salvation of all who would truly believe in him. Another way theologians have said it is Jesus is the new Adam. He's the second Adam, the representative for a new humanity. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Everyone born in Adam is condemned by inherited guilt and further weighed down by sin. But for everyone who is born again in Christ, we are redeemed and free from guilt with all of our sins, past, present, and future, paid in full. See, the incarnation is not only relevant and significant, it is paramount. For without it, we would be without The incarnation secures our salvation in Christ. So as we close, how do you respond to something like that? Matthew 1, 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. Luke 1, 38. These are some of my favorite words in scripture. Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Both Mary and Joseph respond to the news of the incarnation with faith, obedience, and worship. They hear this grand news when they say, let it be to me according to your word. Now, put yourself in their shoes for a minute. This news, the incarnation interrupted all of their well-designed plans. They had, think about it, two young lovers, like thinking about what their life is going to be like. And this news interrupts all of that. It changed the direction of their life. It meant that for the rest of their days, they would be vulnerable to ridicule. See, not everyone gets the angel visit to tell them how that child was born. People just started doing the the biological math and went, "Uh uh-oh, they must have, you know, came together before their time. And in that cult, in today's culture, that would be no problem at all. In that culture, it was shame on shame on shame. It meant they had to walk by faith, not knowing how it would all work out. It meant they had to trust in the goodness of God, their Savior, even when they couldn't understand. How do we respond to the incarnation? We respond and say by faith, Let it be to me according to your word. See, when you believe in the goodness of God and see that in the incarnation, God came down to be with us and for us, then you say this, God, I trust you. I trust you to rewrite the script of my life. I am your servant. Let it be according to your word. Larry King who has interviewed just about everybody significant since 1985, was once asked, 
Hey, if you had the opportunity to interview anybody in history, living or dead, who would it be? And Larry King responded this way, Jesus Christ. And then he offered the answer of why. He said, and I would like to ask him, Jesus, if he was indeed virgin born. He said, the answer to that question would define history for me. The incarnation is not trivial. It is not irrelevant. Friends, it is meant to define history for you. It's meant to change everything because if it's true, it means the greatest obstacle to your life, the greatest uh, uh, hindrance to your joy has been removed. And further, the greatest object of your joy in life has been given to you. Jesus came to save us from our sin. His divinity meant that he was powerful enough to rescue us, and his humanity meant that he was eligible to take our place. And when your heart grasps that history-defining truth, you respond in faith, obedience, and worship. Seven Mile Road, may we be a people of incredible grace who respond with faith, obedience, and worship. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you did not leave us alone but you definitively, decisively, miraculously, joyfully came in the person of Jesus Christ.